a warning. This episode of Residence contains coarse language, some sexual and drug references, and themes of mental illness and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Having lived abroad several times, I'm endlessly fascinated by stories of people packing their bags and heading off in search of a place to call home, even if it's for a short time. And so I went back to my flat and said, guys, I've I've thought of something amazing. Why don't we just all go to Australia? And they all went, no. (laughs) Anyone who's ever relocated to another country is familiar with the range of emotions that can come with it from anticipation, excitement, and fun, to disappointment, stress, heartache, and sometimes even trauma. Something's going on, I think you need to ring the police, and I think you need to tell them, or the ambulance, because he's having, he's having a, a psychotic episode right now. We called the police, and we had to pin him on the street, and we, were, we you know, pinned him down whilst he was screaming, I've got a knife in my pocket. This podcast explores the question, What is home? Is it just a place of residence or something more than that? Welcome to the Residence Podcast. I can take my mask off. Do you have a good idea? Yeah. That's just where I hang out with you. What do you mean? Uh, whenever I've had a breakdown uh, during the lockdown when, when Dylan and Izzy still lived here, wait, you might it's going to be okay on the wall. When it got a bit too much. Yeah? Yeah. Whenever one of us had a breakdown, Nathan just kind of put that out there as I asked him what each of the notes meant that was stuck to the kitchen wall of his large St Kilda apartment. There were several of them, all saying exactly the same thing, but written in distinctly different handwriting. The handwriting of different flatmates who'd come and gone. Who'd returned back home to Europe for a range of different reasons. Visa expiry and COVID-19, the two main ones. The message written on each little piece of paper staring right back at me read, It's gonna be okay. If you're a Victorian, and even more so if you're a Melbourneian, this hasn't been an easy mantra to adopt in the last couple of months. This interview took place in late September 2020. Melbourne was deep into the painfully familiar rhythm of the second wave of coronavirus and the abundance of restrictions that came with it. Luckily, Nathan and I both lived alone at the time and within 5Ks of each other, so we were legally allowed to catch up and talk about his experiences about everything that had led him to pin this mantra to his wall and recruit everyone he lived with to do the same. Nathan and I work for the same company. In the last couple of months, I've come to know him as a very intelligent, driven, and sensitive young English bloke, wise beyond his years, with a very strong vision for his life and who he wants to be, even in the sea of complications he's seen since moving to the country. Through money troubles, visa restrictions, to getting sucked into some questionable crowds, and more. He's persevered and stayed longer than he predicted. He's proud of himself for that, and he's not ashamed to admit it. He goes on to tell me about the journal he writes in daily. Today I'd learn the important role that that journal would play in Nathan becoming the man that he wanted to be, 
and dealing with all the curveballs his year in Australia would throw at him. Is this stuff for your scrapbook? Yeah, yeah, so it's all like to be stuck in, but it's all in, it's like, so this is the most recent stuff to stick in, and then that's, it's going to current, so that I know how to space the books to stick stuff in, you know. Do you want to, do you want, where do you want me to set up? Do you want to set up here? Yeah, yeah, I just, I'm just going to move everything across. Yeah, there it is. Nathan makes us both a cup of tea and informs me that it's the first of many as we progress through our interview. But you've got your cup of tea there. That's like the, that's the foundation of whatever you do. Yeah. <laughs> cheers. So cheers to that. <sighs> okay. We then go on to look at photos he's taken over the last year. Pictures taken with his Polaroid camera that he usually takes everywhere with him. He flipped through a small photo album filled with these Polaroids, giving me an insight into what the last 12 months have been for him. It's funny looking back at all of these, you know, it, it's a year, but it feels, <laughs> it just feels, it doesn't feel like it really, especially with coronavirus. It, my life used to be so busy and then, and it's not been very busy for this last year. It's never about trying to create an awesome shot well a lot of the time it's not so i try and catch the good moments but most of it's just life because that's what it's just living because that's what it is for most of us most of the time nathan thank you for agreeing to do this look we've, we, we chatted we chatted a bit about this last week you told me your story and we really got to know a lot of things about uh, where you'd come from, how you ended up here. And how long have you lived here for? I've lived in this house since December, December the 23rd. We were here on Christmas Eve, but we didn't have electricity for a week. So that was a bit of a, a struggle over the Christmas period, not to have electricity for a week. <laughs> Did you have any questions for me before we kick it off? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Why have you not explained what the microphone's standing on right now? The origami set and the thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle of a koala that my mum sent me to help us get through lockdown. Because I knew that you would explain it, so I didn't need to. Oh, of course. You are the master here. <laughs> However, it wasn't really until we sat down to record this episode that I learned he wasn't always this sure of his path in life. The challenges he's faced didn't begin when he left the UK in search of a new adventure. They began much earlier, way back in high school in Oxford, England. Yes, so... So where are you from? Where are you from in the world? My name's Nathan Sames. I'm 23 years old. And I'm from England. Very proud English boy. But I guess that question of where I'm from which we're going to elaborate on today has always been something which I've, I've had an uneasy answer to. It's funny, my friends actually joke because sometimes when they ask where I'm from, especially when I'm with new people, then I'll say, well, I was, I'm from Buckinghamshire, really. That's where I was raised in the countryside of England, near London. But really, I grew up my whole life in Oxford because that's where I went to school and that's where I hung out all the time. And um, but my mum is from the Midlands, Stoke-on-Trent, um, and she has a very working-class background, and that's really how where I feel like my soul from is from my the fire in my belly feels like it's from Stoke. Um, but then on my dad's side, he's he's culturally Jewish, but he's an East London boy, 
So really, where we live is not where they're from. And that's where I feel like I'm from. I don't feel like I'm from where I'm from. And then I, was, I went to Bristol and Bristol really made me. So sometimes I say Bristol as well. So I'm saying all of this to new people when they meet me. And my friends are just saying, you know, just bloody tell them where you're from. Like, why have you got to give them a whole five minute story? But I guess that's who I am. When I grew up at home, when I say that I lived a lot of my time at Oxford, I went to a, a school in Oxford. And um, in the last years of my life, my parents went through quite a serious divorce, you would say, from probably 11 until, until you know, they were settling court cases until I was 20, 20, 21. Yeah. You know, big, big court cases, ones that cost a lot of money and ones that cost a lot of time. More importantly, time of both people involved in the divorce. But it's never like that, really, because it's a knock on effect for everything. So when you're 14 to 18, that bit in your childhood, when you're probably just at the end of your school years, I really I lived at different places a lot of the time. I was at home, but I never felt like I was that, that at home that much, you know. It was never a place where I came to and just, you know, I, I, you feel comfortable because you're, you're home. Why do you think that was? I think it was because... I think that I lost my sense of routine. I didn't live with my mum for a while. I fell out quite badly with her um, because... My mum and my dad are kind of... I always see them as two opposite ends. They they seem to be completely contradictory when I was at this time, definitely. My my mum was incredibly strict about certain aspects about the regime which and the routine, which was her house. And then my dad was incredibly laid back about his routine and regime. And I didn't really feel like I had a routine or regime. It was just somewhere which I, which I, I slept and... And uh, I tried to stay out as much as possible, I think. So I spent a lot of time at friends' houses. A lot, I had girlfriends and I spent a lot of time at girlfriends' houses. Nathan did anything he could to keep busy and to keep his mind off his troubles. He'd stay at random friends' houses, dive deep into his studies and take part in drama and the arts. He began to develop a pattern of running away, of creating distractions. He created a pattern of going full speed ahead and not stopping to think about anything. Really, in those last years of school, I went to a very, very high achieving school where a lot of the people ended up going into Oxbridge or at least definitely university. It was all A stars and A's. Um, and I was a smart boy. I was smart enough to be there. Um, and I would just work very hard because I knew that I w- wanted to go to university to get a degree. And that was, that was it. That was the end of the tunnel. So I worked really hard in my schooling, which was incredibly difficult as well because I didn't have a routine or a safe or, or a place really to go back to. It was safe, of course. I just didn't feel, feel right there. Um, so do you think, do you think, is it kind of like, um, so you were saying that the main thing that you were running from or the main thing that you kept you away from home was feeling like you didn't fit in with the way your parents did things like their routines and stuff like that. Like it was too regimented for you. Is that what it felt like? Well, that's what my, what, that's what it was with my mom. It was too, it was too much. And 
we got into a, the biggest fight that we got into when we left was when she took my passport and I wanted it for some reason. I just even just to have it because it was my identity. It was my passport. But in, in my mum's house, it was her house. So it was her passport. There weren't any boundaries there because this is hers, her house. This is her realm. You live by her rules or you don't live or you don't live here. That's the there's the line in the sand. And in fact, that argument, it was vicious. It was vicious. And that day I, I left, I left my mom's house and I lived with my dad for about two years then until I was 18. So from about 15 to 18, I didn't really see my mom that much. I wouldn't speak to her on the phone. I didn't go to relatives' weddings because I wasn't associating with that part of the family at the time. And my dad, my dad was a very clever man and I respect him in a lot of ways. When I was growing up, I was always kind of a mummy's boy though. Nathan tells me that it was difficult for him to put into words what his final years at home were like. Maybe because it's hard to remember. Or perhaps, he says, because maybe there wasn't much worth remembering in the first place. As with many broken homes, the story isn't a clear narrative. And I have a very strong connection with both of my parents to this day. I've, I mended things with my mum eventually, you know. And so I don't think, I have no hard feelings about saying that this is what happened. Because it was, and you have to be truthful about these things, I feel. So I needed more freedom to do what I wanted to do and to, to act how I wanted to act. And, there, and, you know, perhaps really what I needed was, <laughs> was probably the opposite of that. And I, and I needed kind of more stricter guidance. This is of no fault of my parents, but, but without, but I thought that what I needed was, was the space. And that's what I had at my dad's house, kind of no routine. I just did my, did my thing. It did all of my things. I've always, my dad's always harbored this feeling of accepting the fact that you that you are different challenging authority being an outcast and that's something which i've always carried with me it's not been a problem to go against the grain mm -hmm. and for my school yeah i had a very difficult time in the last couple of years because i was just so n not going with the flow so in high school sort of you were you were getting good marks and stuff like that. You were doing well in high school, right? Yeah, I, I was definitely clever. I was in good sets. And, I, and as I said, my grades were really as high as everybody else. So it wasn't much for the school, but they were really good grades, mm. you know. And so I did work hard and I, and, I, and I could work hard, but I was letting other things slip around me. I would always be late or... I would never go to chapel, which is, we had to go to chapel in the mornings of school for like 15 minutes. Why did all that stuff slip, do you think? Because, because I didn't have a routine. I didn't build a, I didn't build a life around, around, I didn't build a life and then have the school as part of my life. The school and the, the grades just were my life and I didn't really think about anything else. As I said, it was just surviving. It was just getting to the next hurdle and it all came to a head when in my last year I was doing a maths exam and the maths exam was slightly earlier than the other exams in the exam period. Everybody in my class, it was a very small class that was taking this exam 
because it was kind of an elite maths set. And so everybody in the class would take that day before the exam off school, obviously to revise, you know. And their parents all set, called in and said that they were taking the day off because they were sick. But my dad, just because, I don't know, there's, there's something about being honest about what you're doing and, and people should accept that because everybody knows what's, what's happening. Why do we have to mince our words about this? He said that he, I was revising rather than I was being sick. And this was a final straw that the master decided that this was it. I am the symbol for breaking, for going against the authority of the school. And I felt like it was me at sea in a, in a, in a raft, you know, and I was paddling. And that was and that was it. And it, and it doesn't matter if if somebody had told me if you th- to go with the wind, which is this way, and you'll find the land. I wasn't going to hear it. I just had my head down, and I was just paddling to get to get to where I thought I needed to be. Although not having structure and discipline in high school was hard, it would only become harder when he moved away from home to attend university in Bristol. His life was unbalanced and out of control. He didn't have a stable home to ground him. His school had abandoned him and he didn't trust anyone enough to let them help him. In his own words, he felt like he was on a raft at sea, alone. He fought to escape university, but his first years would prove to be further stormy waters. But I left school and I went to uni Mm -hmm. with this sense of, right, I'm here (laughs) and I have no idea what it is to to be self dependent really i could cook for myself and i and i did at home but it was very basic and but i did but the key thing is that i didn't have routine you have your lectures but but no one's keeping tabs of whether you're going in you're given a university email but no one's going to knock on your door if you're not replying to your emails you know could is it fair to say that that's the start of you you creating a structure for yourself yeah you lacked well the first year really wasn't the first year was it was a it was a blur to me when i look back on it now it was me working out what kind of people i I liked how i wanted to go about interacting with people for the first time i didn't have many mates at school and it and it did and it exacerbated the issue because i lived away far from school an hour and a half by bus you had to take two buses to get to my house it was a very long way. The furthest person I knew that lived out of school was me and a couple of other people. This is uni, like university. No, I'm saying school. that this is this school. is school. So mm. I didn't, and I didn't grow up with with many friends out outside. I mean, I made good friends in other in other areas, like in in my acting and my arts, or but I didn't have anybody around where I lived that was my friend. It was just me, and it was just me and my brother and my sister, maybe. And that's why I used to hang around Oxford that so much as well. But it was different going to uni and then everyone being there. And it was a bit of a shock. It was like, okay, now I do have to work out how do I live now? How do, what do, I, how do I build a routine? How do, I trust, how do I know that I can trust people? The first year was a nightmare. You know, I, didn't, I don't think I responded to emails until the end of the year. I think I went to maybe four lectures for the whole year and I didn't hand in my work. It was never a choice. I didn't know how to do it. I just like had not learned. No one had told, I'd forgotten how to build a routine. I'd forgotten when I was 13 or 12 and we used to have to go to bed at 7 p.m. after dinner, which was at six, because that wasn't how I lived my life. Dinner, when I was, after, after I left my mum's house, 
and the routine from that house. Dinner was whenever I decided that I was going to eat and bedtime was whenever I decided I was going to go to bed or whenever I got in from wherever I was, which could be a lot of different places. So that it was just like, it wasn't a choice for me to get, to have a routine or not. It was, this is what, this is my life. This is what I know now. And so that was me. And so how, okay. So when was that point where you said like enough's enough, I need help mm. with this. So this is like leading up to before you go overseas. So this is all this stuff about struggling with creating a life for yourself, a routine for yourself, um, structure being your own boss but in a healthy way like when when was that point where before you went overseas because it would it would have made this experience a lot harder if you didn't have that right if yeah. you hadn't hadn't gotten help i remember you saying that to me yeah so, so when was that point so the first year was my first experience of real freedom of having my own of having my own room and that was like a, a, a safe place for me to go back to this is my home now my room at uni you know my my uni digs i lived in i lived in the uni accommodation for the first year as do many people so that was like okay now this is my own home and now i can do what i want and i meet people that i want i spent a lot of my most of my time out in performing arts i was still doing things i was going out a lot working out who my friends were and working out yeah doing a lot of acting but i I can't remember much of it and it and it culminated the end of the year i hadn't handed anything in you don't even need to get a uh, get a certain grade in your first year it's it doesn't work towards your eventual grade you just have to pass you have to get 40 percent, and really that just means you just need to bloody hand something in mm. like it wasn't difficult i i i left it until the the very last minute after school had finished after university had finished until into the summer holidays i had a girlfriend at the time i'd be staying up because it was the last night before i handed in my essay which was very not uncommon for me to just pull an all-nighter on the last night and and try and do it and um i i only passed first year because i found out that i had lyme's disease miraculously from a lake in in italy in milan lake Como. the ticks are there just like the ticks are in the new new forest in england and if they bite you then you can get lyme's disease and which is kind of a it just makes you very sleepy all the time. I got this. That qualified me for extenuating circumstances for me to have a little bit more time to hand in these essays. And I didn't have to do a second essay, which was a penalty essay. And even then, I handed in those those extensions on the night before, you know. So I just scraped it into second year. Um, and this is another thing that I absolutely got wrong. When I went to uni, I just chose a place which looked pretty. But and. And this was under the recommendation of someone I didn't know who had been to that place. But it turned out that this place was just where all of the real, all of the private school, the boarding school guys go. They went into this particular halls that I went into at uni. It's a very prestigious hall. You don't have to do anything particular to get in. You just have to get into the uni and then get selected for the school. Maybe because you get the grades or whatever. And they weren't a good crowd. They, they weren't. They weren't my. They weren't my crowd. I'd never really clicked with the people from my school, which is upper white middle class upper middle white families that were li- liberal elite inte- intelligentsia of Oxford whose mothers would all would be willing to do anything for their for their children and have the time because you know they weren't working I'm making very broad generalizations here but but those were the sort of people that I grew up in school and those are the those are the personalities that I really detested detested the fact that people could think did think and it did it did um, harbor a sense of privilege and its sense of entitlement, perhaps. 
I was always hanging with the guys from the estate who I do my outs- my drama with outside. And they were from the, sl- the suburbs of Oxford, the rougher suburbs. Nathan made friends and moved in with a group of guys he thought would be good for him. But as it turned out, they were battling their own demons. I lived in a house of basically outcasts again. And it, it works both ways because my friends that were from the rough parts, sometimes they'd say they'd meet my friends from, from school and... You know, they they make fun of them for being for being more posh. But then my posh friends would make fun of the the guys that were from the rough areas of being rough. So I ended up in second year living with the living with a guy who I felt a bit sorry for because he was struggling as well. And um, I said to everybody else in the in the house that we need to live with him because he doesn't have anybody else to live with, you know? And they said that they're not, they don't want to do that. So I said, you're fine. If you want to, if you want to live without him, then just fuck off and do it. And I'll live with this guy by myself. So I live with him and, a, and two other guys I didn't know as well. Mm-hmm. They were all interesting guys and they were, they were still, you know, up more, more they were well well educated still and this guy in particular i mean he came from a very wealthy family but he was also different um he was also a bit of an outcast in my second year i lived with these guys and he actually ended up um, attempting suicide uh he was a, Is this the guy you moved in with? Yeah, James. And he, you know, he really struggled. He he would dabble in, in drugs and then he'd just be playing computer games. He was a computer engineer, computer science guy, computer science guy. And he used to just play on online forums all day. He never went to any lectures and sometimes he'd just, you know, take drugs and play and that would be it. And, but he was on antipsychotic me- medicine as well. He actually, he... In his mind, he created a relationship which he had online with a, with a boy that he went to school with who was six years younger than him. Mm. And he had a psychotic outburst when, on, when he was playing on one of these forums that the guy, he said it's his, uni- it's his anniversary with this guy. And, and the guy said, you know, that's not, that's not the case, James. We're not together. And when it hit him the harsh truth that the, the reality that he'd made himself was fake. He had an outburst when we had a, we had a route, we were on the third floor. So we had a, a, a ladder up to the roof and he tried to climb up the ladder after screaming on, on the floor and he was wearing tracksuits and I was grabbing his, his legs. I'd been in to speak to another, one of the guys in the house before saying, Hey, I think something's going on. I think you need to ring the police. And I think you need to tell them or the ambulance because he's having he's having a, a psychotic episode right now. We need some help. So he was in the other room ringing the police. I was trying to calm James down because I was always... Uh, we, we, I wouldn't really describe us as friends that would go out and do things together. We didn't have that many similar interests. But I wanted to look after him because this was a guy that didn't that other people just ignored because he was a little bit strange and he was a little bit against the grain. But that wasn't a good enough reason for me. He had a good heart. And although maybe he 
he was a he was a liability in a lot of senses and he did things that weren't right sometimes that's not because he was malicious it was just because he didn't know how to act in social circumstances and because he was a little bit broken which you could kind of relate to in, in a way maybe yeah. yeah yeah i think i you know he wasn't a bad person and so there was no reason for me to dislike him but where, whereas the cruelty that i saw some of the others show towards him yes he might have been a bit weird and and you might not have enjoyed living with him in every aspect because he didn't get on with everybody and he wasn't friends in the same sense as, as your friends with this person okay going out drinking with them you know talking about football or whatever because you couldn't have that with this guy but he was re- he was a real person um but anyway so uh, so yeah i have this moment with my with my friend in my second year i'm grabbing onto his legs and his trousers come down actually and he's naked on the top half so he's naked and he hasn't he doesn't keep good hygiene so he smells and i'm wrestling him on the stairs and i have to call my friend to come in and he's a bit of a bigger guy and he pulls him down from the stairs and and we really like have to stand over him because we know that he could have i don't know he could do something else he could run away so i have to stand over him when he's naked writhing on the floor this was um obviously quite a shocking shocking moment and living with him and the other boy who was who was depressed in a very different way in a way where plates would be out and he and and you know he wouldn't move from the sofa watching the tv i go out for a rehearsal or go out to play some rugby and i come back and he'd still be in the same place watching the same show smoking smoking a different joint obviously but um and and sometimes you feel like you could really talk with him and sometimes you'd ask him oh, look would you mind just cleaning up your plate and he would be so angry um so I live with these guys and I saw what it was like what these guys were like when you know they had no routine as well they like me had extenuating circumstances the guy that I just talked about who is um a big the bigger guy who had a different form of depression he he was doing his fifth attempt at he was on his fourth first year when I was in the first year and so he, this was his fifth year at uni in his in his second year his first time he'd got through we helped each other get through second year, I think, with extenuating circumstances, with everything involved. We actually got to second year, you know, he'd never been that. This was his sixth year at uni when he was, when I was in my third. Actually, I was the only person to finish my degree from that house. We had another guy as well who was so clever and had so much going for him, but he was just, he was you couldn't tie him down. He was too here and there. He was very clever, but he'd never converted what he had in his head and that's with all these guys what they had there down onto discipline and writing it down on the paper and proving that you you were clever in that sense because this is what the the system is built for it's people that can that write down and impress people with what that what they're writing in the exams it's people that have the routine and the structure in their life to be able to go on and revise for hours you know to be able to do the work outside of just being clever and understanding what needs to be done the guy that tried to take his own life he got sectioned we had to section him that night and in fact after pinning him down on the street which he tried to, where he tried to run to his car which had already been a problem before when he drove his car to a bridge and then 
So we didn't want to let him get in the car. We called the police and we had to pin him on the street and we were, we, you know, pinned him down whilst he was screaming that I've got a knife in my pocket. So I had one hand and, and he had the other hand and we were, would not let him go into his pocket. Even though he didn't have a knife, he was just saying that the police came eight of them and took him away and sectioned him. They put him in a cell for 24 hours. You can have your mother pick you up when you've been sectioned, but his mum didn't get him. Um, we told her what was going on. She knew, but you know, she didn't come and that was to, to look out for her son. He came back the next day. I was actually on the roof at this point with another friend of mine, Phoebe. And he came back. We took all the sharp knives away from the, from the cupboard because we were afraid that he might use them. And they were lying on the, on the kitchen work surface. Just, it was like an island surface. So it was the kitchen, then the surface, then the living room. And all the sharp knives were there. And, and the guy, Tom, who was the, the press guy, came up and he said, hey, James is here. You're going to need to come downstairs because I'm not going to be able to deal with him. You need to talk to him because I was, you know, quite good at talking to him and just, you know, being there for him. I was just his friend. And I came down and he was not happy because obviously in his eyes, we pinned him down, rang the police and got him sectioned to put in a cell for 24 hours. He obviously wasn't happy about that. And he and I was standing on one side and he was standing on the other side of the kitchen and with the knives were in the middle and he was saying, all I wanted to think about is fucking hurting you guys for the last 24 hours because of the hurt that you caused me. He'd just scraped by at uni. A lot of other people he knew didn't even finish. This was the start of a realization that if he didn't sort himself out, if he didn't implement a routine and prove to himself that he was worth something, that he wouldn't survive. And this might have been when he started feeling like he needed to get away or to find a home, wherever that may be in the world. So, yeah, I think, you know, that's because of my mentality, which definitely my, my, my dad, but also my mom instilled on me when I was younger, which is, you know, this, you, you are your own person and it's okay to be, be that different person and you need to value people for who they are. It doesn't matter where they come from. My mum being from the middle, you know, very much working class upbringing, no grades, no grade, you know. And unlike the guys that I was living with who were kind of, they did not live with a structured routine life. They were, they were living again, completely against the grain I realized in the second year living with these guys, getting through uni, but really uni, just life, you, you have to put all of the work in outside of, of just having the natural ability to do something, to think or to question or to feel or whatever. You have to build something on top of that. In his third year of uni, Nathan received a diagnosis that would change his life, that would put everything he'd been through in school, university, and at home into perspective. It would also be the catalyst to make possibly the biggest decision of his young adult life. It really changed my life when the lady that I said was helping me at uni that knew my circumstances and was sympathetic to them, she suggested that I take a, t uh, a test, a dyslexia, a test with a, with a proper psychologist, I guess you would say, an assessor a psychological assessor. And I took that test 
and <laughs> it was really really a, a profound moment for me when I found out that I was quite severely dyslexic dyspraxic or it's very difficult for you to read and then and then be thinking about something else at the same time simultaneously and that's why it takes you days to get through books when your colleagues take getting through it in hours that moment when when I got diagnosed with that was was massive for me because it was like finally I have a reason for why things are so difficult that I just put them to the back of my mind and I and I do other things and don't really think and, and wrestle with what my real problems are with how I'm living and how, how I'm going about this degree but just more more to the point how I live my life and I had another mentor organized by the university called Helen who I owe a lot to who taught me how to structure my time how to manage my time efficiently Helen really believed in me and so when she suggested that I plan I do my work in this time of the day and then I go and do this when it was coming from her it wasn't coming from a place of authority telling me what I needed to do it was just coming from from somebody who really earned my trust and to this day we stay in contact and she always is outgoing in saying how much she she's proud of me and how much she believes in what I'm doing and how and she wishes really the best for me and I believe her in response to that I always say because this is what I believe as well that that you know you are the the you are the wind that fanned the flame you really helped me and you showed me a way to be and I trusted you when I think I didn't trust many people in author, in an authoritative an authoritative position at the time I grew a really close friendship with my mentor Helen she met my mom and she met a lot of my friends I took them to see her when I went to speak to her it wasn't like I was speaking to somebody to tell me how how to be better it was just I was just going in for a chat and that's most of what we did we just talked um, and coming from her she changed my life it gave you a lot of what was missing yeah back in the day I think it was I think after having this diagnosis and realizing okay like I was just fighting everything and fighting everything and then I got this diagnosis and it was like you, you know there's a reason for it why don't you just instead of completely fighting against it and now I had something a part of me to work with and I said okay like, like how can I play to my strengths now rather than just fighting on the next episode of Residence we continue Nathan's story so in my in my third year I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do with my life and so I went back to my flat and said guys I've, I've thought of something amazing why don't we just all go to Australia and they all went no <laughs> she's trying to make you a drug mule she's trying to get drugs into Australia and she's using the pig you're going to get you're going to you're going to find people at the airport they're going to target you they're going to pick you up and she's going to use you to get drugs into the country she just gave me a toy pig and then we checked the pig and there's like a normal machine stitching on all the way around the pig and then just under the arse there's some hand stitches that were really obvious and we were like oh god 